Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, dedicated to making you a better seller. Recorded 4,827 miles across the Atlantic Ocean with Bobby Das from Houston, Texas, a father, husband, golfer, pilot, and tech seller. And Brian Evans, an expat in London, England, family man, 2X Ironman, and an ERP salesman. Both sharing tried and true sales strategies and providing free tools to make each week and campaign easier for you. They also answer your questions weekly. Now, here is Bobby and Brian. Hey, hey, everyone. It's Brian Evans from the Tech Sales Show. Thanks so much for joining. We've got a fantastic guest today. It's Jeremy Epstein. He's the CEO of Never Stop Marketing. Never Stop Marketing is a blockchain marketing company. Uh, fascinating stuff. I think you'll really appreciate this. Uh, for those of you that blockchain and cryptocurrency is, if it's new to you, I think you'll get um, a great background and just education on what it's all about and the market opportunity here. Um, he also has a really um, interesting background too. He went to university, got his, his undergrad in, in John Hopkins University in Maryland with a minor in German. Then he went on to move to Germany to go to university and then he moved to Japan to go to university. Uh, so a fascinating educational background that led to a, a really interesting career. Uh, so we really enjoyed the podcast. We thank Jeremy for joining. Um, so if you have any feedback on it, please let us know. If this is your first time to check out uh, the Textile Show podcast, thanks for, for tuning in. We really appreciate that. Uh, we are focused on helping sellers in the technology industry up their game. We always talk about average being the enemy. And we help uh, tech sellers with tips and tricks. We bring on great guests. We provide a lot of great tools and content. So, uh, and we do it all for free. So uh, check us out, bobbyandbrian.com. We've done a number of series on impeccable first meeting preparation, on territory planning, on uh, negotiation, uh, cold email tips. And we just are finishing up a series on career development. So... Thanks so much for joining. If you have any questions at all, hit us up, info at bobbyandbrian.com. And now, here's Jeremy. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Today, we have with us Jeremy Epstein, who is a co-worker of mine, friend of mine, somebody who still calls me every year on my birthday. Uh, most of the last few years, I haven't had a chance to answer, but uh, welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So Jeremy and I were both business productivity advisors at Microsoft some, I'm going to guess that's been 13, 14 years ago now, uh, a long time ago. God, I've not even heard that title in a long time. That's amazing, man. <laughs> well, it's funny. Today, I still get asked, and, and we have a bunch of videos on YouTube and other stuff where I get credited for being this Excel guru, and I say, well, that happened because I used to be a productivity advisor at Microsoft, and everybody's like in awe, but I'm like... That was me trying to sell Office 2007 to a bunch of 2003 Please. customers. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't an easy You were gig. better at the job than I was, so that makes sense. Well, we really appreciate you joining. Uh, I, I am impressed that I get a phone call from you every, every year on my birthday. I have to ask the question, how many phone calls do you make every day? Every day? I mean, it, it's on average, I would say, because... There's not an even distribution of birthdays, but on average, I'd say it's about five a day. Wow. And so one of my first blog posts as we started BobbyandBrian.com and the Tech Sales Show was an article called Call 10, where 
today I still try to call one person in the morning and one person in the afternoon just to stay in touch, find out what's going on to them, not sell them something, but just stay in touch, much like your phone calls are. And it's amazing. All those phone calls keep us connected, and here we are uh, on a podcast together. So thanks for continuing those phone calls. I promise this year I'll answer. Now, the other follow-up question to that is, what's the day you make the most phone calls? Is there any specific um, time you know, of year? We, we have, you know, being an ex-business uh, productivity advisor and an Excel junkie myself, needless to say, I have analyzed all of this. Uh, so it's interesting because there are just a few uh, peaks throughout the year, like the end of May, like the 28th and 29th, for some reason, both have like 12 or 13 birthdays each day. And then there's like a big, uh, another blip, like in, uh, September. September is a little easier to understand because those are uh, Christmas babies. So there is a higher percentage of the population born uh, at the end of September. So that makes sense. But the end of May, I've never really been able to nail that one. So you get a big bumps in those two. And then a couple of days you have like uh, one or two and then average is about a five. And then every, you know, kind of like a, a curve like that, I guess. Well, don't take me off. Don't take me off the list because I'm a 28th baby. So I'm May 28th, and uh, don't take me off your list. There you go. There you um, go. Well, that's why I can't talk to you because I just got to plow through everybody else. I'm like, sorry, man, I got to go. There you go. Too many people. <laughs> well, I'm impressed with the analysis, Jeremy. I uh, and it probably lends to your your background. So we've we've had a number of guests on the show that have a unique educational background, but nothing that's quite like yours. So um, <laughs> went to John Hopkins, widely considered a top 10 university on the planets uh, with a minor in, in German. You spent some time at, uh, in Germany, spent some time in Japan. Mm-hmm. What was it about your upbringing that um, drove you to explore kind of this unique uh, educational path when you were young? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of things, I guess. Uh, I was very fortunate as a child that I got to do a fair amount of traveling. So um, I was exposed to a lot of uh, other countries and, and things like that. So that sort of, um, you know, whet my appetite. And my, uh, my dad was big on history. So I always got very interested in other places and other people's stories. Um, and then as I studied uh, history at Hopkins, uh, and I'm sure the alumni office would be happy to ha- have you call them a top 10 university. I, I know most people don't feel that way. So uh, I'll definitely clip that part and send it to them. <laughs> but at least you guys think so. So that's good. Then they'll probably hit me up for money. So maybe I shouldn't. Of but, course. Of um, course. Yeah, exactly. So I studied history and, and, you know, I just sort of um, got really interested in that. And then another thing is I've, I've always been a passionate technologist and just, I love playing around with it. And so um, I just sort of really spend a lot of time, studying that, studying technology, studying history, and, you know, looking at uh, economics because that's sort of how the world works, uh, you know, sort of beneath the surface. So um, just kind of interested about how people respond to incentives and the stories they tell themselves and, you know, what makes people tick. So uh, I guess that's sort of maybe the answer. And actually led me to marketing in a strange way. So, Jeremy, we see you speak four languages. Obviously, that comes from your international travels. How have those travels changed your perspective or views on the business world? You know, I think especially as the world has become significantly more globalized in the last, you know, 20 years or so since the arrival of the the commercial Internet, 
Um, I've really tried to, to pull on my experiences living in other countries and, and language capabilities to recognize that, you know, the world is much bigger than America and that different people have different ways of doing things that they're not necessarily better or, or worse. Some of them are definitely worse and some of them are definitely better, but, um, you know, and try to sort of keep that in mind. Um, and I think, you know, as we deal more and more with international audiences, um, recognizing, um, it's just being sensitive to how other people will interpret things. It's funny. I was talking yesterday. I was on a plane back from Denver yesterday and I was sitting next to a professor from, University of Colorado, who's an uh, expert in like linguistics. So we were talking about languages and what have you. And I had shared with him a story where a couple weeks ago I was in Korea and I was speaking to about a thousand marketers uh, in Seoul and they're all Korean. And it was a really interesting challenge for me because, um, you know, my, I knew that I couldn't go at my normal hundred mile an hour pace. And I also knew that I, I had to kind of be, thoughtful about my vocabulary because I just was aware that the speed and the extent, um, you, the extensiveness of my normal vocabulary wasn't going to effectively convey the message. So that was just an interesting kind of conversation. And another thing I tell people that I see um, Americans do a lot that kind of always gets me a little bit nervous is they'll use metaphors and analogies that are very uniquely American, like, hey, let's get this off over the goal line or, you know, we, let's get the final 10 yards or something like that or hit it out of the park. And a lot of those things just make no sense to foreign audiences. So you just have to think about that. But I think that that skill um, helps you just bring it all the way back when you think about sort of um, as a salesperson or as a marketer really communicating with your customer, your prospect, your audience, um, and what, where are they coming from culturally? Like I tell people you can't even make movie and television references anymore because none of us watch the same shows. So you should really just think about, um, those types of things. So that's kind of some of the ways that I think it's it informed, uh, my, my activities. Yeah. I, I think that's, it's been one of the biggest learnings for me here in the UK. I, originally from Texas. And if a company is headquartered in Dallas or in Houston, right. if they're looking for economic growth, they're expanding to Colorado or Louisiana or, or spreading across the U.S., which isn't a very difficult thing to do from a just a commercial standpoint. It's, there's not a lot of barriers or uh, right. to further liquidate yourself. For a company in the U.K., this, it's a, as, as big as a commercial engine as London is, um, You've got to expand to Paris and to uh, to, to Barcelona right. uh, to have a bigger presence and to grow economically. And I think that's uh, been a major learning for me. And to your point, just in in the UK alone, uh, there are 400 different words in the Oxford Dictionary that that are meaningfully different than the the US dictionary. And it's important right. to know the nuance. Uh, it, it, customers that you work with expect you to know those nuances. Yeah, I think that's an amazingly important point. It's like, look, I, my experience, I mean, you live there and been there a couple times. I've been there a couple times. And my experience is like, they're, they're pretty tolerant of Americanisms, but making the effort to show that, you know, instead of referring to, you know, uh, an American football game, if you throw out a Premier League reference or, you know, which is always dangerous depending on who your audience is. Sure. They take it pretty seriously. You know, sure. they're like, yeah. Hey, what about Chelsea? And they're like, no, I love Arsenal. You must die. That's a different story. But, um, you know, I think, I think you're right. Like those nuances 
and understanding your, the, the language of your customers, whether it's in the UK or whether it's in, uh, you know, Waco, Texas, uh, you know, and you're driving down I-35. I'm just trying to get some Texas street cred right now, by the way. Um, you know, those are going to be um, really valuable to differentiate you from the competition because it's going to send a message to your customers and your prospects that, um, you take, you're making an effort to understand them and understand where they're coming from, which is really what you're doing as a salesperson or a marketer is you're trying to solve people's problems. And if they feel like you actually understand them, um, you're, you're going to help, you know, you're, you're going to differentiate and that's going to increase your likelihood of, of making the sale. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So, so when you, um, when you graduated from university in Japan, uh, your first mm-hmm. job out, out of university was with fast communications. Y- mm-hmm. You could have taken a number of different paths um, professionally. What, what led you, what was interesting about sales and marketing to you um, coming from your background that, that led you to fast communications? Yeah, so it was kind of accidental initially because um, the owner of, of uh, fast communications was a guy named Todd who was actually was Canadian, but he'd been living in Japan. And I heard him speak uh, before I finished school and it was like 1997 and he was talking about this thing called the internet, which I knew about cause I'd been emailing since 1991 and I built my first homepage in 1992, but I was too young and dumb to kind of understand how it was going to affect the world. And he's like talking about all these things and I'm thinking, Oh my God, this guy is doing everything I've been thinking about. And then some, I should go talk with him. So I, I went up to him and, we struck it, you know, up a good conversation. And one thing led to another, I started working for him and he was doing what we would call internet marketing back in 97, 98. And he said to me at one point, Hey, what marketing books have you read? And I was like, uh, none. So he gave me my first marketing book, which was Don Peppers and Martha Rogers, the one-to-one future. And I just kind of devoured it. And I was like, Oh my God, like, this is my calling in life. This is super cool. Um, about really creating personalized relationships and, and delivering value and, and understanding people and just whatever. Like to me, it just seemed like an amazing challenge and sort of almost a game that could be played not to manipulate people, but to really kind of like, how can I deliver the most value? Um, and since then I've just been sort of studying marketing and, and thinking about it. And ultimately, you know, people say to me, wow, you studied history in college. How did you get in marketing? And I'm like, God, it's the exact same skill set. Because if you think about what do historians do, they take a bunch of facts and they string together, uh, they, put, they, they create a thesis and then they string together a narrative supported by those facts in order to make their point. Well, that's what marketers and salespeople do. Like, they take yeah. a bunch of facts and string together a narrative. It's the exact same skill set. So you're telling a story. The first story is, Here's why, you know, this Roman emperor was the greatest of all time. And the second story is, this is why you need to buy a Hyundai or whatever it is, you know? No, it's a great analogy, great analogy. So let's talk a little bit about your history. You, you, you've worked for several companies. You've helped raise funding. Ultimately, uh, we connected and you landed at Microsoft. What led you to the Microsoft job? Uh, you mean besides desperation and I needed a gig? Uh, let's see. I, I would say, you know... A couple of things led me there. I, I think, I'm trying to remember, oh, one of my former clients 
uh, when I was in, I worked at a company called Snickleways back in .com, you know, Internet 1.0 boom, and it was an e-commerce web development shop. Um, and one of my former clients there uh, was a guy named Marty Cassidy, who had landed at uh, Microsoft as an enterprise sales manager in New York. And we kept in touch, just probably through birthday calls, just like you and I did. And at some point, he calls me up and goes, Jeremy, there's this opening um, at Microsoft. And he knew I had moved back to D.C. from New York, where I was living. And he's like, hey, you know, you may want to take a look at this. So I was like, all right, well, that looks kind of interesting. And, you know, I, I had come out of, after leaving Snickaways, I had worked, I'd had my own startup with my brother, which we ran for two years which was basically TaskRabbit, but like 10 years too early. So we missed that one, but whatever. And um, I looked at this Microsoft thing, and I was like, okay, that looks cool. And I remember like in 2002, I was thinking like I was very excited. I was still excited just as I am now about sort of the power of connecting people and, and using technology to improve people's lives and, and, you know, all that good stuff. And I looked around, and I'm like, wow, you know, if there's a company that can actually make this vision that I have a reality in terms of the technology, the resources, the global reach. I was like, Microsoft seems like one of the best places where I can do that or I can be a part of that and I can learn and all that stuff. So I just got, you know, got into the interview loop. I actually got negged out of my first interview loop at Microsoft, but I, one of the guys who was interviewing me on that loop brought me back for his team, which was the BPA team. So that worked out pretty well. Um, and then I was there for, you know, six years, mostly, you know, doing the BPA stuff. And then I spent a lot of time in SMSP, the small and mid market team, um, doing sort of like channel marketing and, and, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, it was a great experience. I mean, it was a tough time at Microsoft as everyone knows, but, um, you know, met some great people like you, Bobby, <laughs> and, um, you know, and some other good folks and, you know, learned a lot about marketing and learned a lot about the technology world. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I ended up there. Yeah. I think, I think we all three, it sounds like we all three appreciated our time there at Microsoft. It's fun to work for a mm -hmm. big global company as well known as Microsoft. You learn a lot. Um, but you, you made a jump to Sprinkler who, uh, in 2012 wasn't as well known. Can you tell us about what was your, you know, what was the decision like to join and, and talk about how you took it through kind of such uh, major growth over those, that period of time? Yeah. So uh, the sprinkler story can't really be told without telling the end of the Microsoft story, I'm afraid. And this part of the Microsoft story is maybe not as glamorous. Um, I was sitting in a room in uh, Bellevue, Washington, in Lincoln Square with about 20 to 25 other people on the Microsoft partner team. And we were sort of like discussing ideas of what we could do to sort of generate awareness and activity from our partner channel. And I sort of say, this is like early 2008. I'm, I go up and I'm like, you know, there's this new thing called Facebook. And I think it could be a really interesting way for us to, you know, connect with our partners and our customers. Um, so there was a guy whose name I won't mention right here, but, uh, he gets up and in front of everybody, he says, quote, that is the dumbest effing idea I've ever heard. We don't control the platform. We don't control the content. It's coded in PHP. Like what's wrong with you? And I'm like, okay. So that was kind of humiliating. And I walked out of the room and I was thinking to myself, all right, 
Uh, I don't know what the future of marketing is. And Microsoft's been immensely successful for the last 30 years doing what they do. But my hypothesis is that the arrival of these new, you know, social media things like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook um, are probably going to change marketing. Um, so I kind of want to explore that, but Microsoft's like an aircraft carrier and they want to go to the left and I'm a guy in a canoe who wants to go to the right. So I'm going to lose that battle. So basically I was like, you know, I got to go explore this. So, uh, it's tough to leave Microsoft cause it's a great gig and we love the benefits package. Let's be honest. That was pretty damn good. Um, and I know it's like the gold standard there, but whatever. Um, so I left and I started never stop marketing, um, in like spring of 2008, I guess 10 years ago. And my, the, the premise of the consulting firm was not so much, how do you use Facebook and Twitter for advertising, but more like, how do you rethink the way you do marketing because of the arrival of these technologies? So I spent three and a half years sort of exploring that. And I wrote a couple books and it was all about community um, and, and, and connectivity and uh, finding your raving fans. My personal favorite moment during that entire um, uh, period was when I got a call about two years later from the head of worldwide sales and marketing training at Microsoft uh, saying, you know, people are really interested in this social and community marketing thing. Do you want to be the worldwide instructor for our course? And I'm thinking to myself, uh, you could have had it for free, but if you want to pay through the nose, okay, we'll do it your way. That's fine. So, I mean, it was crazy. They sent me all over the world. I, I mean, by my own count, at one point, I probably shook hands with more Microsoft marketers than like the CMO of Microsoft did. I mean, I touched like 1700 individuals during one year. I actually joked that I, you know, I made, I, I had such a good line of business from this particular work that I had a plaque made and I dedicated a room in my house to, to the team there because it was so great. Um, but one of the things that happened, one of the people I met um, through these uh, courses that I was teaching reached out to me and he goes, Jeremy, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about is something that one of my good friends talks about. It sounds like you guys are saying the exact same thing. You should really talk to him. And I'm like, all right, I'll talk to anybody. So, I get a phone call from this guy, Raji Thomas. I still remember where I was. I was driving to the airport and he was like, okay, uh, I read your blog. It looks like total shit, but it's really brilliant. And I'm like, thank you. I think like, what do I say to that? Right? So he goes, you need to come work for me. And I said, uh, I really appreciate that, man. But like, I got a really good setup here. Like either like Microsoft flying me business class around the world to go like pontificate or I sit at home in my shorts and I walk my four-year-old to nursery school. Like, it's a pretty good gig. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to build the next big enterprise software company. All the marketers out there are just like old-school brand marketers. Nobody understands community and social. You need to come work for me. And I'm like, no, man, I don't think you understand. Like, I'm pretty happy with what's going on. I'm like, I don't want to rock the boat. So for like three months, he keeps coming after me. He's like, you got to come work for me. you got to come work for me. So finally, he says, look, why don't you come up to New York? I live outside of D.C. And he says, come take a look at the software. So I was like, all right, you know, what the hell? So I jump on the train, I took three hours, you know, up to New York, and I go in there, and I see Sprinkler. And I'm like, within four minutes, I was like, oh, my God, this guy has figured out how to do everything I've been talking about 
at scale. Because the big issue with all of these sort of ideas I was talking about in all my sessions was I did not know how to do it at scale. People would say, Jeremy, I love this, but what do we do at scale? And I had to make up some sort of BS consultant answer because I didn't know. But I saw a sprinkler and I was like, oh, wow, this guy's figured it out. So I came back from New York and I went to my wife and I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to take a 75% pay cut and I'm going to go work for this crazy guy for this startup. They just raised their first round of financing. There are 30 people in the company and the company's valued at like $20 million, but I think it's a good idea. And she's like, you're insane. And she's still unhappy about it. But basically the pitch that Raji made to me, he goes, Jeremy, you have this theory about how marketing works in a social, hyper-connected, customer-empowered world. I'm basically going to give you a laboratory to test your theory out. So I'm like, okay. So basically what we did is we implemented sort of the theories that I had built up. And what we found over the course of three and a half years is that for the most part, like it worked, you know, now I certainly did not do it all by myself, like amazing team, great technology, great CEO, all kinds of things have to go right. But fast forward three and a half years, four years, and we've grown to 1400 people and a valuation of 1.8 billion. So that was a pretty uh, remarkable ride as you can imagine and I just feel like incredibly blessed and, and fortunate to have been a part of it. That sounds like an amazing journey. And uh, those things, 25% of your income might not have been nice, but when you're doing exactly what you're most passionate about, it makes going to work a whole lot easier every day for sure. So, oh, yeah, for sure. Those interesting experiences, and now it's kind of correct me if I'm wrong, I think the average person is a lot like Bobby Doss. 90% plus broadly think blockchain and cryptocurrency is in this bucket of quote unquote, it's interesting. It's the future. They may have a Coinbase account of some sort, but where do you think we are in this technology curve with, with where we're at today, cryptocurrency, et cetera, Bitcoin. Right. So the first correction is I would say 90% of the people in the world are not like Bobby Doss. They might be a bit like him, just as it relates to crypto, but every way, every other way, they're totally different from him because he's a unique cat. Let's be honest. Um, okay. So, yeah. So basically it's a good question. And I think basically maybe some background is the idea is like, once I was sort of done with my mission at sprinkler, I sort of was like, okay, what's next? And I started to look around for that new challenge. Cause I personally have to tell people I enjoy the part where you land on the beaches of Normandy more than the part of like plowing across France into Germany. So I was like, all right, what's next? So I started to look around. Now I bought my first Bitcoins back in 2012, which was great, but like everybody else, I didn't buy enough and I sold too early and whatever. But I had a few and I was like, all right, what the hell is this Bitcoin thing anyway? So I started to read about it and pretty soon I got to the point where I was like, oh my God, this thing is a technology disruption tsunami it's like 50 miles off the coast and basically no one knows it's coming and the reason why i arrived at that conclusion and the reason why i didn't think that um it was just another like google buzz google wave google glass kind of meerkat whatever fade, uh fad was because i spent enough time like doing a two things a couple things number one understanding how the technology works and once i sort of understood 
what, how blockchain worked. I'm like, okay, like I can see how this makes sense. But more importantly, I understood the core value proposition. And the core value proposition is that what the internet did for information is allowed us to transfer information basically in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion directly between people. And that's great for information. But what blockchain's systems do is basically allow us to transfer items of value directly between two people or two institutions without the need for a third party intermediary. And that's a pretty big deal because in order for commerce to work at scale, you have to have uh, consensus about who owns what asset at what time. Because if I send a picture of my kids to you guys, we both have a picture of my kids. It doesn't matter. But if I send a picture of like the title to my house, and I, you guys have it and I have it, well then, how does everybody know who owns the house, right? And if you aren't clear about who owns the house, no one's gonna buy the house because they don't wanna get caught up buying it from the wrong person, which is why we have title insurance. So what we've done, for example, is we are over for the last 800,000 years since the, well, I guess it's like 700 years since the first merchant bank was set up in Venice, I think, or something like that. But we've created these third party institutions like Visa, like Bank of America, like you name it, the MBA, anybody that basically brokers trust between two people who don't necessarily know or trust each other. Like if the three of us are engaged in commerce and we generally trust each other, yes, I know you're going to honor the deal. It's not a big deal. But when we start expanding beyond 100 or 150 people that we know, it becomes really, really, or we really trust, it gets complicated. So basically what we say is, what Visa says is, hey, merchant in London, you don't need to trust Brian or Bobby or Jeremy, you just need to trust Visa. And it's our problem to go get the money from those guys if they charge it, it's not yours, right? So that's how we broker trust. The challenge, of course, when you have third parties, is it introduces three uh, significant challenges into the equation. And all three of these challenges um, add friction points to commerce and add costs. So the first thing is it adds time, right? Because we have to go through these third party intermediaries and that just adds another hop as opposed to going direct. Number two, like I said, it adds cost because like Visa and PayPal aren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. So you have to pay for that. Somebody's going to pay for that. And number three, and we've seen this more and more over the last couple of weeks and months, is it adds risk because the data about both parties is kept in a centralized repository. So thank you, Equifax and Facebook, for being exhibits A through Z on that particular issue, right? So now we have these three things. And when you take a step back and then you say, wait a second, there's extra cost in the system, there's extra time in the system, and there's extra risk in the system because all this data is stuck there. You start saying, well, wouldn't it be better for everybody if we de-risked it, lower the cost, and we removed and we made the the uh, the friction and we removed some of the friction and the time so that you could unlock, you know, commerce. And when you understand blockchains at their core, you know, that's the value proposition, and it allows us to have a consensus at scale so that you can do commerce, you can exchange value, decentralized across you know, at scale with people you don't necessarily know beforehand, but you can trust that they're good for it because you know they own the asset and you can be assured, and this is where smart contracts start coming in, you can be assured that you're actually going to exchange your item of value for their item of value. And when all said and done through the way the beautiful technology works, 
and all the mathematics that at the end, there's going to be consensus so that everybody knows now you own my house and I have the money that you paid me for it. And we all know that. And then going forward, it's very clear about who owns what. And that allows for friction for commerce to kind of continue on with much in a much more sort of frictionless environment. And once you understand that, you're like, Oh dude, this is a pretty big deal. And it's something that's gonna, like, it just seems to me having been through a couple rodeos right now, that it's pretty inevitable. Just a question of time. It's a great explanation. I, I think that will certainly, it certainly helped me. It'll certainly help the audience as well. And it's, I, I think you're, given the the borderless nature of of, of blockchain in general, uh, your global background had to contribute a, a major part of your um, uh, your ability to execute here. If you're, let's say that you're in the shoes of a up and coming uh, account executive in the technology industry, how do you? What should you be doing to prepare yourself for this shift? And let's say that maybe you even want to look at what is my career going to look like in the next five or 10 years? If you, if you were to put yourself in their shoes, Jeremy, what would you be thinking about if you're them? I, I think it's really two, one act, one action and one habit that I would immediately do. The first is, and I don't really care how much we're talking about. The first is if you don't own some crypto, go buy some. Now I'm not even talking about this from an investment perspective because I'm not giving investment advice here. I'm saying it from a purely educational perspective. If you were to spend $250 on a course, go say, you know what, I'm going to spend $250 and have Bitcoin. Because once you own it, then you can start saying, okay, how does this work? Because the only way to really understand how the technology works is sort of by playing around with it. So set aside some sort of like play budget and like practice sending things and things like that. Just start doing that because that will invariably lead you down the path and you'll start to put pieces together, number one. And number two, and this was actually a conversation I had with the professor on the plane yesterday, that's one of the challenges of the current educational model that we have, at least in the States, is people tend to think once I finish college or maybe once I finish graduate school, like my quote-unquote education is done. But, and, and he was telling me this really interesting stat that like people who got their PhDs like 50 years ago, 95% of them are still in the exact same field, right? And it's like this stasis of knowledge. He says, but that doesn't work anymore because now things change so quickly that you can't kind of just assume that what you needed to know when you were 24, 27, whatever, is all you needed to know for your career. So the habit I tell people is you have to commit. And that's what I told my kids and whatever. Like, you have to commit to, like, lifelong learning. Like, I have a habit where every Saturday morning, basically from like 9.30 to like 11.30, my kids and my wife are all out of the house. It's totally quiet. There are no distractions, no phones, nothing. I sit down and I've like printed out, literally printed out like six or seven of the best articles that I found that week. And I just read them. And like two hours, and it's like deep, deep, deep thinking time. Now that's for me. Other people have their own approaches and I don't really care what it is. The, the successful people that I've seen, I saw this with my CEO at Sprinkler. I saw this with my CEO in, in, uh, in Japan. I've seen it over and over again. Is that the most successful people are the ones who, who have built a period, uh, 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 an operating system for their lives in which a key module is lifelong learning. 
and maybe is listening to the Bobby and Brian podcast every week religiously and telling all your friends about it. That could be a great way to do it. But whatever it is, they're like, this is my lifelong learning commitment, and they do it. So that's what I would say is to understand crypto, like go get a little bit and start playing around with it. And then whatever it is that you want to kind of explore, commit to lifelong learning and dig in that. And if you do that, it's going to position you better because the one constant in life is change and it's changing ever faster. And I think that's the only way that you're actually going to, no one can keep up, but that's the only way you're going to actually feel somewhat better prepared as these changes start coming at sort of the fast and the furious model of changes um, over the course of your, you know, if you're in your twenties, I mean, the amount of change we're going to see in the next 50 years, I can't even get my head around it because if you think about the last 20 years, internet, mobile, social, and now crypto, I mean, any one of those is huge, but now all four of them? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's crazy. And I love hearing how you keep up with all this stuff. That's one of our last questions normally is how do you keep up with all this stuff? Because we are changing so fast in the tech world. Um, everyone seems to be struggling with it. And you, you work at Microsoft, the portfolio is so big there, but then you think about every other supporting company it's crazy what we're all trying to keep up with. To that point, Brian yeah. and I both uh, read your article on love. Uh, you love your article on fourteen rules of growth marketing. We both picked out our favorite one. Uh, my favorite Ooh. one is rule number ten: don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I have to adapt to this every day as a perfectionist by soul and being. I can't. I got. I had to learn how to let go and make sure that the good got out the door, or nothing would ever happen. Uh, I think we re-recorded yep. our first episode on this podcast like six times at my fault, and then we started unscripted and doing it much better. So, uh, Brian, what was your favorite one? Uh, for me, it was number 13. It was uh, communicating the strategy. Uh, we just finished up a series on territory planning, and whether you're an individual contributor, whether you're a manager, uh, it's all about calling your shot. And if you don't know what it is, um, what strategy it is you're executing on and you're not uh, deliberately calling it out, then you're not going to be able to make a course correction at the end of that quarter. You're always shooting blindly. So, uh, yeah, it was a great uh, it was a great article. We'll we'll certainly post this on the show notes. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. So. I guess, Jeremy, we, we only have a few more minutes left. If you were in the shoes of, a, of an up-and-coming sales rep, hopefully we rewind to those days when we were BPAs and we were both doing some marketing ourselves, we were doing some selling ourselves, we depended on a big virtual team. As a guy who's global and been around a long time, what would you be recommending them to do to not just be an average rep? It's a great question. I, I guess the way I think about these things is one of the things that I've realized now is that people really respect when you tell them the truth and not that people lie, but like, especially a lot of times it's that people are afraid to say what they're really thinking because they're worried about like, you know, sabotaging the deal or they're worried about offending the person, whatever. Now I'm not advocating being rude, but what I found, especially as you get higher up, you know, the corporate ladder, like, if you understand enterprise pol or even any, any politics, and I live in D.C., which I tell people is like ground zero for the twilight zone right now. But, you know, if you understand politics, like as you get higher up the organization, there are fewer and fewer people who actually will tell you what's really going on because there's so many people kissing your butt. So I think the way that you can differentiate as an up and coming salesperson is is like 
obviously do your homework, be prepared. But when you have that opportunity in front of like a key decision maker, like you can differentiate yourself from everybody else who walked through the door by just like almost speaking as if the sale's not on the line. It's like, you have to get yourself out of the mentality of like, I need to close this deal or else I'm going to get fired. I mean, I need to close this deal. Like that people can smell that and they can smell when you're, they may not be able to articulate it, but they can sense whether you're telling them the full story or you're telling them what you think they want to hear. And I would just encourage people to be like, look, go in as prepared as you can and tell people why you're saying what you're saying. And if you've done your homework and if you are well-read and you are prepared, like they're going to respect that more often than not. And it's counterintuitive and it's scary as all can be. And it, when it blows up, cause it will, it's, you're going to get beat up. Like, why did you do that? Did you cost us a deal? Like that's going to happen. But over the long haul, you know, you talk about strategy over the long haul, that strategy is going to serve you much, much better um, in a sales career than any others. And that's just what I've seen from, you know, I've worked with some world-class salespeople, really. And you just see, like, they're polite, they're respectful, they do all that stuff, but, like, they'll just, they'll, they'll, they'll speak the truth to you. And, like, you know what, I don't think this is a good thing for you now. Or, you know what, you're thinking you want A, you want B, and here's why I'm recommending B. Um, based on what you told me, it's the stuff you care about. And I think if you can do that and bring it back to their needs and, and you've given them the confidence that you understand them, uh, or at least you're making an effort to understand them. Uh, I think you're going to have a successful, you, you're more likely to have a successful career in sales. Yeah. There's no doubt that you can smell desperation from a mile away right. and the, the sales exec that, um, manages his own cadence, uh, is himself is honest in the process is educated, studied and prepared is going to, is going to execute well. So that's great advice. Thanks for that. Um, sure. you, you shared that you, you kind of collect articles through the week and then you, you spend some time at the end of the week, just reading and digesting that. What, you know, kind of outside of articles, what types, what books are you reading? What authors do you, you know, whenever they release their next book, what do you run out and get? I've got like 10 books on my bookshelf right now. And I kind of flip through a bunch of them. I mean, I'm, I'm all over the place. Um, I do actually have a recommended reading list on my blog, which we could post, I guess so that's for people who want to get into marketing. It's like my all time 10 greatest hits. Um, but these days I'm actually listening. I do a lot of audible listening to, I'm listening sure. to uh, skin in the game. Uh, Nicholas Nassim Talib's new book. He's pretty intense. So he makes you think, uh, I'm reading the attention merchants, which is by a professor at Columbia who talks about like how we've been like getting people's attention, packaging and selling it. Like, thank you, Facebook again for that one. Um, and then I've got, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Those are sort of two, but, um, yeah, just the probably eight or nine others that I sort of just pick up and read a chapter and then put it down and what have you. Those are sort of the, the two that I, I guess come to mind right now. So one last question for me, and then, then we'll wrap it up. I, I, you've seemed to be in front of a, of a lot of things over the last decade, sprinkler, mm -hmm. et cetera. What, what do you think is the next big thing uh, that that Microsoft executive might tell you is the most effing worst idea he's ever heard that we should all be thinking about, whether we're in tech sales or not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm a... 
I'm a one trick pony these days on the, on the crypto stuff. So like that's, uh, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I think Microsoft's actually to their credit, like doing a nice job of getting behind it. I don't know how much it's permeated up to like the Satya level. I'm sure he's aware of it, of course, but I don't know how big of a thing is, but like, you know, I think, you know, there's some macro forces going on now that lead me to further reinforce it's confirmation bias. I'll admit, but it, you know, you look at the Facebook stuff, you look at the, the whole, um, you know, Brexit and, and it's not about politics, but certainly, you know, the Trump election was an indication of a, a lack of trust and sort of, you know, centralized uh, or sort of, you know, top head previously sort of hegemonic or potentially uh, out of touch, um, you know, entities. Uh, that's one interpretation, of course, same thing for Brexit, same thing that happened in a bunch of other countries like Italy and and France to some extent, well, not as much, but, you know, so I think there's been these larger forces, which make me wonder if people are going to start saying, you know what, this trade-off that I'm making about all this quote unquote free stuff in return for my data and privacy, like I'm not a hundred percent comfortable with that. So maybe that's wishful thinking. Um, that's part of it. But then I think the second part is, you know, the ability to, uh, decentralize, um, economic power and that drives financial inclusion and that drives, um, you know, uh, um, sort of individual empowerment. Um, and then maybe like some of those larger things like a climate change or whatever. So I, I start to see all these things. And I, I mean, for me, the beautiful thing about crypto and, you know, my brother tells me I've drunk way too much Kool-Aid, which I probably have, but I think that the, the beautiful thing is that it offers the possibility of aligning incentives between individuals and communities, which we don't really have right now. And so I think thinking about how um, to use this to really drive value, but also drive worthwhile community and societal goals while giving individuals, um, you know, a better life in whatever, however they define that, like to me is exciting and appealing. So um, I th like I said, I, th I mean, I'm, I'm hanging my career on the fact that this thing is a game changer and not a fad. So I do have some skin in the game on this one. Um, but, you know, I, I think to me, it's like the internet all over again, um, but bigger. <laughs> How's that for hype job? There you go. I like it. So two, two last things for you to share with our listeners and then we'll, we'll say thank you. How do you want our listeners to find you and what you're doing? Number one. And then number two, what can our listeners do for you and never stop marketing your company? Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you. Uh, you know, neverstopmarketing.com is uh, the best way to get started. Um, you can go from there and LinkedIn and Twitter, but that's, that's the, the home base, if you will. Um, you know, and as far as if, if people are interested in uh, understanding more and participating, and like I do not have all the answers by any stretch, but... I blog five days a week, neverstopmarketing.com slash blog. Um, and I'm always throwing ideas out there. And one of my favorite things is I'm very fortunate to have a decent size uh, audience uh, globally of people who read this stuff. Uh, I don't know why they don't have anything better to do, but whatever. Um, and uh, they read it and then they'll come in with comments and ideas. And, you know, it's just, it's all part of sort of this exploration of, what's happening in, in real time. So if this is something people are interested in, like those are, uh, that would be a great way, uh, to do it. I would say so. 
Outstanding. Well, we'll certainly include uh, links to your sites uh, and everything on our show notes for this at bobbyandbrian.com. Jeremy, we can't thank you enough for carving out some time for us uh, to join the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show with Bobby and Brian. Subscribe to their email list by going to bobbyandbrian.com and follow them on Twitter at Bobby Bryan Sales. <laughs> <laughs>